So I hope you will not be disappointed, you will not hear a lot about architecture. What follows is simply a multitude of variations on a single motive. Home is evil. That is to say, evil is not primarily a property of persons, but evil has to be defined in topological terms. Evil is a certain place, evil is home. That is the underlying thesis. So what do I understand by evil? Let me specify, develop this a little bit. Uh, of course, what I have in mind is the modern notion of evil. Virginia Woolf wrote that somewhere around 1910, human nature changed. In the same vein, I'm tempted to say that somewhere around 1800, with Immanuel Kant's philosophical revolution, the status of evil underwent a radical change. Today, we continue to live in the shadows of this change. In what precisely did this change consist? In two of his well-known stories, The Black Cat and The Imp of the Perverse, Edgar Allan Poe spoke of the so-called spirit of perverseness. A short quote now. Of this spirit, philosophy takes no account. Yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart. Who has not, a hundred times, found himself committing a vile or a stupid action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law? merely because we understand it to be such. It is, in fact, a mobile without motive, a motive not motiviert, a German expression with Pope. Through its promptings, we act without comprehensible object. Through its promptings, we act for the reason that we should not. Now, it is deeply significant that these formulas of Edgar Allan Poe, a mobile without motive, a motive not motiviert, and so on, immediately recall Kant's determinations of the aesthetic experience, purposefulness without purpose and so on. What we must not overlook here is the crucial fact that this command, you must be precisely because you are not permitted. That is to say, a purely negative grounding of an act, accomplished only because it is prohibited. That this command is only possible within the differential symbolic order, in which negative determination as such has a positive dimension. That is to say, in which the absence of a feature itself functions as a positive feature. Edgar Allan Poe's Imp of the Perverse therefore marks the point at which the motivation of an act, as it were, cuts off its external link to empirical objects and grounds, and grounds itself solely in the imminent circle of self-reference. In short, Poe's imp of the perverse corresponds to the point of freedom in the strict Kantian sense. This reference to Kant is far from accidental. According to Kant, the faculty of desiring does not possess a transcendental status since it depends wholly upon pathological objects and motivations, pathological in the Kantian sense of empirical contingent. Jacques Lacan aims, on the contrary, to demonstrate the transcendental status of this faculty of, of desiring. That is to say, the possibility of formulating a motivation for our desire 
totally independent of pathology, again in the Kantian sense of empirical contingent motives, motivations. Such a non-pathological object cause of desire is the Lacanian object smolle, objected a. So I think it's crucial to bear in mind this, let's say, transcendental background, that this is precisely an object which is not a contingent pathological object, but let's say a pure, purely negative, a priori self-referential object. Edgar Allan Poe's Imp of the Perverse offers us an immediate example of such a pure transcendental a priori motivation. When I accomplish an act only because it is prohibited, as it were to defy the prohibition, I remain within the universal symbolic domain without reference to any empirical contingent object. That is to say, I accomplish what is strictly a non-pathological act. Here then, I think, Kant miscalculated his wager. By cleansing the domain of ethics, of all pathological motivations, Kant, of course, wanted to extirpate the very possibility of doing evil in the guise of good. What he actually did was to open up a new domain of evil, far more uncanny than the usual pathological, empirical, uh, empirically, uh, contingently conditioned evil. So my point is that uh, what Edgar Allan Poe produces here is precisely in this uh, paradoxical imp of the perverse, an act which is committed for the sole reason that it is prohibited, is a kind of a priori evil. In other words, an evil which perfectly fits the Kantian description of the good, of the notion of the good. So, again, we saw that this a priori cause of this ambiguous act, evil, whose form is that of good, is object small a. So again, next I will try to answer, to clarify at least, this enigma. What is this famous objected a, object small a? Well, let me take another popular, the first, okay, example from popular culture. In one of his brilliant essays, Stephen Jay Gould, I think a Lacanian biologist, if there ever was one, extrapolates ad absurdum the long-term tendency in the relationship between price and quantity of Hershey chocolate bars, you know, that horrible American chocolates. For some time, that's the long-term tendency, you know, that for some time the price stays the same while the quantity gradually diminishes. Then all of a sudden the price goes up and we did the quantity. Yet the new quantity is still less than what we had gained with the previous price. No, so that's the tendency. Price stays the same, you get less. Then price goes up, quantity also goes up, but not the same as before. So with price going up, the tendency of quantity goes like this. So the quantity of chocolate bar over a temporal span thus follows a zigzag. It gradually declines, then it suddenly jumps up, then again it gradually declines and so on, with the long-term tendency, of course, towards uh, decline. Now, here is Stephen Jay Gould's Lacanian move. By extrapolating this tendency to the extreme, we can calculate not only the exact moment when the quantity will reach zero, that is to say, when we will get a nicely wrapped void, but also exactly how much this void will cost. <laughs> and this, I think, this nicely, this void, this nothingness, nothingness, which nonetheless is nicely packed and has a definite price, this is, I think, the perfect metaphor for Lacanian object small a, cause of desire. This non-pathological, non-empirical object, a void, 
but still it is kind of teleologically defined uh, cause of desire. So an, an exemplary case of such object, which brings us now to the motive of home, is, permit me another vulgar example, is offered by, I think, a very interesting film, far better, I think. This may sound obscene to you, but I think in a minute seriously, I'm not kidding. Far superior to Schindler's list is Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park was dismissed by most critics as a kind of kitschy techno spectacle whose sole interest resides in its special effects, whereas, so it was usually said, the intersubjective relations between characters remain wholly flat and undeveloped. Is, however, this really the case? What if here also evil resides in the very gaze that perceives evil? That is to say, what if the dismissal of Jurassic Park as a kind of techno kitsch spectacle does not express so much the quality of the film as rather the limitation of the critical gaze itself. Namely, the first feature that should make us more attentive is the unusually static character of the film. The action soon, as it were, gets stuck in one place with the repeated attacks of the dinosaurs. If then Jurassic Park is a spectacle, it represents the paradox of a kind of chamber spectacle. That is to say, my thesis is that Jurassic Park is a kind of chamber drama about the trauma of fatherhood, in the style of an early Antonio or Bergman, superior to them, of course. This dimension becomes visible the moment we direct our attention to the Hitchcockian object in the film, namely the tiny bone, a claw, I think, of a dinosaur used by character played by Sam Neill in the very first scene of the film, to strengthen his verbal bashing against of a kid who annoys him with questions. Now this claw, this bone, in its role of a Hitchcockian object, and by the way, you can buy it for one pound of two, a replica of it in uh, Natural History Museum, you can buy the object Smollett if you want. This bone condenses Neil's parenthood trauma, his refusal to assume the parental function. And what are the attacking dinosaurs, if not this same object, overblown into a, a resuscitated monster that materializes the parental superego. That is to say, father's destructive fury directed at his offspring. Homologous to Hitchcock's birds, in which the birds materialize the maternal superego. For that reason, the other key scene of the film occurs when, after the fight with the evil meat-eating carnivorous dinosaurs, Neil and the two children take refuge in a huge tree. tree. Up there, in the safe heaven of the branches, Neil becomes reconciled with them and accepts his paternal function, his symbolic role of a father. The conversion signaled by the fact that once the three of them fall asleep, the tiny bone, the claw, the evil object, falls from his pocket to the ground and is lost to their view. No wonder then that the next morning the atmosphere miraculously changes into one of a blissful peace. The dinosaurs that now approach the tree in the morning are good herbivores since the paternal fury has passed away. As to its symbolic intersubjective economy, the film I think is now over. All that follows is an inconsistent mixture of fragments from different genres that lacks any coherent, let us say, libidinal impact. It is not difficult, I think, to establish the link with Spielberg's other films. Most of them, from Empire of the Sun up to the Schindler's List, are centered precisely, precisely on this trauma of fatherhood, of this kind of ambiguous, half-evil, paternal 
figure which then turns good, saves the children, Jews or whomever. Iti, for example. What is Iti itself, the small crib? If not a kind of vanishing mediator that enables the fatherless family to reconstitute itself into a complete family. Because what we must keep in, bear in mind is that Iti shows up at the beginning of the film in a family deserted by the father who eloped to Mexico with another woman. At the film's end, the good scientist clearly assumes the role of the future father. He already holds the mother around her shoulders. So I think that's really the function of E.T. It's a kind of vanishing mediator enabling, enabling the reconstitution of the family. So my re result thus far is that the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are the backside, the inherent obverse of home, of the family heaven. We encounter this same splitting in the case, let me now use another example from recent political developments, in the case of skinheads who attack foreigners here in England, in Germany and so on. It is becoming fashionable today to interview skinheads at home, demonstrating how in their home environs they are normal people like us, caring members of the family, tender husbands or sons and so on. That's the idea. If they, if they can be so good at home, are they, they, are they really evil then? But I think my point is here that precisely we have to endure this contradiction. A person can brutally beat immigrants, yet in his home circle, he can be the loving husband taking care of his old mother-in-law or whatever. We are dealing here with an exemplary case of Hegelian coincidence of the opposites. A brutal skinhead is not the external opposition to or the other of the sentimental family man, but to use this Hegelian uh, phrasing, this very sentimental family man in his otherness. That is to say, he presents the brutal reaction of this same man when his safe family heaven is threatened. In other words, the skinhead who gets into a fury and starts to beat up them, foreigners and so on, without any deeper rational or ideological motivation, simply because it makes him feel good is nothing else than the narcissistic individual of the so-called society of consumption in, in a different modality. The line that separates them is extremely thin. It consists of a purely formal conversion, since we are dealing with one and the same fundamental attitude inscribed either inside or outside the, the ideological framework of what is socially permissible. How then is this splitting reflected in the domain of the law. Insofar as law is by definition impersonal, blind, abstract, cold, ignorant of our particularity, is there something, that's now my question, is there something like the law at home, the law which functions as its opposite, the law which is not abstract but penetrated with particular enjoyment? I think there is. The psychoanalytic name for such a law, let's say the law at home, is simply superego. The domain of law is always split into the public, abstract, neutral, symbolic law, the guarantee of law and order, and the superego. That is to say, the obscene, knightly law that necessarily redoubles and accompanies as its shadow the public law. Permit me to take another example from popular culture, because I think that this constitutive, inherent splitting in the domain of the law is the subject of recent film, Rob Reiner's A Few Good Men, a court-martial drama about two marines accused of murdering one of their fellow soldiers. 
the military prosecutor claims that the two Marines act was a deliberate murder, whereas the defense succeeds in proving that the defendants just followed the so-called Code Red. An unwritten rule of military community life which authorizes the clandestine nighttime beating of a soldier, of a fellow soldier, who in the opinion of his peers or of the superior officer, has broken the ethical code of the community, of the Marines. Now, the function of this code red, as it is called in the film, is extremely interesting. It condones an act of transgression, illegal beating, punishment of a fellow soldier. Yet, at the same time, it reaffirms the cohesion of the group. That is to say, it calls for an act of supreme identification with so-called group values. Now, what is crucial with this code red is that such a code must remain under cover of night, unacknowledged, unutterable, not integrated into public symbolic universe, let us say. In public, everybody pretends to know nothing about it, or even actively denies its existence. It represents the so-called spirit of community in its purest, exerting the strongest pressure on the individual the pressure to comply with its mandate of group identification. Yet simultaneously, it violates the explicit rules of community life. Where does this splitting of the law into the written public law and its underside, the unwritten, obscene, secret code, come from? From the incomplete, let us say in Lacanian terms, patu, non-all, character of the public law, explicit public rules, are not sufficient. So they have to be supplemented by a clandestine unwritten code aimed at those who, although they violate no public rules, maintain a kind of inner distance and do not truly identify with the so-called spirit of community. So this, I think, is crucial also for the analysis of ideology that the public law, law and order, that regulates law and order, is always redoubled, accompanied by this kind of clandestine, obscene regulation, unwritten rules, which precisely are the key point of social identification, the ultimate guarantee of cohesion, but precisely as such, must not be publicly acknowledged. We thus have, again, the splitting of the field of law into law as, in Freudian terms, uh, ideal, ego ideal, a symbolic order which regulates social life, which maintains social peace and its obscene superego obverse. As has been shown by numerous analyses from Mikhail Bakhtin onwards, periodic transgressions of the public law are inherent to the social order. They function as a condition of social stability. I think that the mistake of Bakhtin, or rather not of Bakhtin himself as of some of his followers, was to present an idealized image of these transgressions, while passing in silence over lynching parties, uh, gang rapes and so on, as the crucial form of the so-called carnivalesque suspension of social hierarchy. So again, what bothers me, at least with some followers of Bakhtin, is that, is that they only see the so-called liberating effect of this kind of suspension of uh, social hierarchy, etc. But I think that precisely uh, beating of the foreigners, uh, uh, anti-Semitic uh, anti uh, uh, acts, and so on and so on. This is this famous carnivalesque suspension of social hierarchy. Namely, this here is my thesis. What most deeply holds together a community 
is not so much identification with the public law, with the law that regulates the community's normal everyday circuit, but rather identification with a specific form of transgression of the law, of the law's suspension, in psychometric terms, with a specific form of jouissance, enjoyment. Let us recall a somewhat mythical example, a small town white community in the American South of the 1920s, where the reign of the official public law was accompanied by its shadowy double, the nightly terror of Ku Klux Klan, with its lynchings of powerless blacks and so on. My point is the following one. A white man was easily forgiven minor infractions of the law, especially when they can be justified by a so-called code of honor. The community still recognized him as one of us. Yet, he will be effectively excommunicated, no longer perceived as one of us. The moment he disowns the specific form of transgression that pertains to the community, say the moment he refuses to participate in the ritual lynchings by Ku Klux Klan or even reports them to the law and so on. And it can be shown that also the Nazi community relied on the same solidarity in guilt adduced by the participation in a common transgression and so on and so on. Uh, I could give you here examples from my own personal experience in ex-socialist uh, Yugoslavia and so on. My point being what? That Again, what truly helps together a certain community is not its explicit public law, but the specific form of transgression of the law. This is to be the true conform conformist. One has precisely to participate in the specific mode of transgression of the law. So again, I think that, uh, which is why I am deeply, I'm, I'm deeply pessimistic, deeply, deeply confused uh, when one uses all the metaphorics of transgression, of transgressing law, the law, etc., as, as if one is doing something truly subversive. I think quite on the contrary. Again, each system involves, implies a specific form of transgression, which is its ultimate, let's say, force point of stabilization. Let me specify this a little bit. When, as a consequence of the rise to power of the bourgeois egalitarian ideology, the public space loses its direct patriarchal character. This relationship, this tension between the public law and its obscene superego, obverse underside, also undergoes a radical change. Namely, in the traditional patriarchal society, the inherent transgression of the law assumes the form of a carnivalesque reversal of authority. The king becomes a beggar, madness poses as wisdom, and so on and so on. An exemplary case of this reversal is a custom practiced in the villages of northern Greece up to the middle of our century. For one day, women took over. Men had to stay at home and look after children, whereas women gathered in the local inn, drank to excess, organized mock trials of men, and so on and so on. Now, I hope you got my point. My point is there is absolutely nothing subversive in this. That this kind of false transgressive liberation is the most horrifying anti-feminist uh, anti guarantee of anti-feminist patriarchal order. Because what breaks out in this carnivalesque transgression, suspension of the ruling, ruling patriarchal law is the fantasy of the feminine power. Now, when Lacan draws attention to the fact that in everyday French, one of the designations for the wife is la bourgeoise, that is to say the one who beneath the semblance of male domination, actually pulls the strings. This can in no way be reduced 
to a version of the standard male chauvinist wisecracking on how, after all, patriarchal domination is not so bad for women since, at least in the close circle of home, they run the show and so on. The problem, I think, runs deeper. One of the consequences of the fact that master, according to Lacan, master is always an imposter, is the duplication of the master. The agency of the master is always perceived as a semblance concealing another true master. Let us recall a nice anecdote from Adorno's Minima Moralia about a wife who apparently subordinates to her husband and, when they are about to leave a party, obediently holds his coat. Yet, while doing this behind his back, holding his coat, she exchanges ironic patronizing glances with the fellow guests. Glances that deliver the message. Poor weakling, let him think he is the master. Now this opposition of male and female power is thus immediately naively perceived as the opposition of semblance and actual power. Man is an imposter, condemned to performing empty symbolic ritualistic gestures, whereas the actual responsibility falls to women. However, the point not to be missed here is that this specter of women's power structurally depends on male domination. It remains its shadowy double, its retroactive effect and as such its inherent moment. For that reason, the idea to bring the shadowy woman's power to light, to acknowledge publicly its central position, is the most effective, the most refined way to succumb to the patriarchal trap. So again, I think that with women it's the same as with the myth of Orientalism. I think that the most the most uh, cunning and uh, in the same time violent form of racism is not direct denigration of the others, but precisely this kind of praising of infinite wisdom of Orientals not accessible to ourselves, corrupted Westerners, etc. It's the same with women. I think there's a kind of false elevation of women which is the most cunning way of, uh, of uh, guaranteeing uh, patri so-called patriarchal domination. Now, once the public law with bourgeois revolution casts off its direct patriarchal dress and presents itself as neutral, egalitarian. The character of its obscene double also undergoes a radical shift. What now erupts in the so-called carnivalesque suspension of the egalitarian public law is precisely the authoritarian patriarchal logic that continues to determine our attitudes, although its direct public expression is no longer permitted. Carnival thus becomes the outlet for the repressed social jouissance, enjoyment, jubating riots, gang rapes, and so on and so on. This difference between law and superego also coincides with that between writing and voice. Public law is essentially written. Precisely and only because it is written, our ignorance of law you know, this is the basic a priori rule of norm, legal norm. Our ignorance of law cannot serve as an excuse. It does not exculpate us in the eyes of the law. We can never say, I didn't know this is, this is the law. I didn't simply know that I'm breaking any rules. Why? Precisely because it is written, the public law. In contrast to it, the status of the superego is that of a traumatic voice. It's not written, it's a voice. An intruder persecuting us, disturbing our psychic balance. What I found interesting here is that the standard Derridean relationship of voice and writing is, her, is here inversed. It is the voice that supplements the writing. 
It is the voice that functions as a non-transparent stain that truncates the field of law while being necessary for its completion. So it's the voice which is the supplement here. This voice is exhibited, for example, by the custom, at least the rumor abounds, that there is a very interesting custom of the power elite in the United States. The rumor goes as follows. Each year, I mean, when I was in San Francisco a year ago, it was in the society where I moved, everybody was talking about this, that each year, for about two weeks, the entire power elite of the United States, top politicians, managers, military, journalists, the wealthiest, etc., they gather in a closed resort guarded by FBI and so on, south of San Francisco, in order to socialize. Now, what do they do there? Even if it's not true, it's nice fantasy. What they actually do there is, for the most part, they indulge in obscene games that precisely suspend the dignity of social rituals. Hard drinking, dancing, singing, vulgar, vulgar songs in women's clothes, telling dirty stories, etc. So that's, that was persistent fantasy. For once a year, they meet all, all of them, from Reagan to Clinton. They dress as women, exchange obscene gesture, they dance, etc. I found this politically correct, very theoretically correct, if not politically correct fantasy, of how power really works. Because, okay, this will be my central thesis also at the end, that, you know, for example, that this apparently liberating gesture, when an authority figure, after delivering his official uh, bombastic speech, like uh, makes a wink at you and tells, okay, listen, don't take too seriously, I'm really human as you, that's the true point of repression of authority. And my point would be that precisely the only way to undermine these so-called humanizing gestures are precisely the ultimate support of authority. So that the way to undermine authority is precisely paradoxically to resist in it to the end. And if I may uh, improvise a little bit, which is why I found, okay, I, may not do, I am a dogmatic Lacanian, I admit it, but at least I have good reasons for it. One of this is that, for example, I met Lacan a couple of times, okay, he was already have beyond consciousness, so he didn't know who I am. But the point is that, as everybody knows, and I learned it, Lacan was uh, always, uh, he played a certain, assumed a certain public role, you know, eccentric behavior, it was impossible to speak with him normally, this kind of specifically French mixture of, of almost excessive charm and sudden cruelty, impossible demands, etc. Uh, you feel overwhelmed by his kindness, at the same time attacked and guilty all the time. So the idea and the myth among Lacanians was, okay, this is his public uh, persona, mask, but how is he as a real man? Namely, the desire was to discover that little bit of human warmth, no? that behind this mask there must be, with his family, etc., a normal person who is kind of, you know, puts off the mask and behaves normally. Now, the point is that with all the people that I've spoken, and I've spoken with lot who knew them in private, sorry, who knew him in private, I got from all of them the same answer. In private, he was exactly the same. Never a moment arrived and you can get him, you know, like he's human. No, he was not human as us. And this is, I think, the true ethical position. But okay, let's go on. So we could also say that this, let's return to this nightly so precisely Lacan, that's my point, was never at home, to put it this way. Okay, let's go on. So this nightly obscene law, we could also say that it consists of, okay, to use the bombastic Greek term, proton pseudos, the primordial lie that founds a community. That is to say, identification with community 
is ultimately always based upon some shared guilt, or more precisely, upon a fetishist disavowal of this guilt. When, for example, to use the kind of standard example, a communist in the Soviet Union of the 30s answers the reproach that the communist regime is terrorist beyond all comparison, that thousands are condemned, shot without proven guilt, that the entire agriculture is in ruins. The actual strategy of the communist response does not consist in a direct denial of these facts, but rather in claiming that the authors of these reproaches are unable to penetrate the essence of what is going on to perceive the emergence of a new man of classless solidarity and so on. So a communist knows very well that millions are dying in the camps, yet this knowledge only confirms his belief that the sublime true people happily, enthusiastically built socialism and so on. The more reality is miserable and depressive, the more a true Stalinist communist clings to his fetish. Every allegiance to some community eventually involves such a fetish that functions as the disavowal of its founding crime. Is America not the fetish of an infinitely open space enabling every individual to pursue happiness in his or her own way? The nature of this solidarity in guilt can also be much more specific. When, for example, the leader is caught, as you put it, with his pants down, the solidarity of the group is strengthened by the subject's common disavowal of the misfortune that laid open the leader's failure or impotence. A shared lie is an incomparably more effective bond for a group than the truth. And I mean this quite literally. For example, with a lot of closed groups, okay, starting with Lacanian communities that I was able to observe, there was always a kind of internal, half-private rumor, shared secret of, you know, of knowledge how the leader, the boss, whoever, the master, is really weak of the weakness. But this not only did not undermine the authority, but the denial in public, the public denial of this secret knowledge of master's weakness is what helps the group together. That's my point, that you cannot build a community on truth, to put it in somewhat bombastic terms. You need a lie. You need a lie. The only thing that holds together a political community is a lie. Some lie, which then uh, functions as a kind of public secret and so on. Now, this tension between public law and its obscene superego obverse enables us also to approach in a new way the classical, used, overused, Louis Althusser's notion of ideological interpolation. Althusserian theory of ideological state apparatuses and I interpolation, I think, is more complex than it, may than it may appear. For example, when Althusser repeats again and again after Blaise Pascal, act as if you believe, pray, kneel down, and you shall believe. Faith will arrive by itself. He delineates an intricate reflective mechanism of what can be called retroactive autopoetic foundation. Namely, what is the mechanism here? It's not simply that, it's not what Althusser aims at with this notion, I think. It's not simply a kind of reductionist assertion that uh, inner belief depends of, on external behavior. I think Althusser's reasoning is more refined here. The implicit logic of his argument is, kneel down and you shall believe what? Kneel down and you shall believe that you knelt down because of your belief. That your following the ritual is an expression of your inner belief. In short, the external ritual performatively generates its own ideological foundation. This so it's kind of more complicated self-referential logic. 
But things are even more interesting, I think, in the case of interpolation. My thesis here is that Althusser's example, what he calls uh, little theoretical theater, contains more than his own theorization gets out of it. As you probably know, it's standard piece of reading in theory of ideology, Althusser evokes an individual who, while carelessly walking down the street, is suddenly addressed by a policeman. Hey, you there. By answering the call, that is to say, by stopping and turning around towards the policeman, the individual recognizes and, at the same time, constitutes himself as the subject of power, of the big other, in the Althusserian sense, the big other as the big other of power, the ideological big other, the author of interpolation, the one who addresses you. Permit me not too long a brief quote from Althusser. Assuming that the theoretical scene I have imagined takes place in the street, the hailed interpolated individual will turn around. By this mere 180 degrees physical conversion, he becomes a subject. Why? Because he has recognized that the hail was really addressed to him, that it was really him who was hailed. It is a strange phenomenon and one which cannot be explained solely by guilt feelings, despite the large numbers who have something on their uh, conscience. Naturally, for the convenience and clarity of my little theoretical theater, I have had to present things in the form of a temporal succession. There are individuals walking along somewhere, usually behind them, the hail rings out, hey you there. One individual turns around, believing, suspecting, knowing that it is for him. But in reality, these things happen without any succession. The existence of ideology and the hailing or interpolation of individuals as subjects, into subjects, are one and the same thing." End of quote. Now, again, my thesis is that there is more in this description, in this example, than what Althusser gets out of it in his theory of act of interpolation. Namely, I think that the crucial feature of this quoted passage is the double denial at work in it. The denial of the explanation of interpellative recognition by means of a guilt feeling, as well as the denial of the temporality of the process of interpolation. Individuals, as Althusser puts it, do not become subject. They always already are subject. My thesis is that this double denial is to be read as a Freudian denial, Verneinung. What the timeless character of interpolation renders invisible is a kind of atemporal sequentiality that is far more complex than the theoretical theater staged by Althusser. This repressed sequence concerns precisely a guilt feeling, but, and we are back at Kant now, a guilt feeling of a purely formal, non-pathological, in the Kantian sense again, non-pathological nature, a guilt that, for that very reason, weighs most heavily upon those individuals who have nothing on their conscience. That is to say, let's make a quite naive empirical thought experiment. In what precisely consists the individual's first reaction to the policeman's, hey, you there. That's my experiment here. Just imagine quite naively you are walking down the street, you hear behind you a policeman, hey, you there. My idea is that your first reaction is not yes, and then with this recognition you constitute yourself as subject of ideology, subject of law, of legal power. My quite naive notion is that the first reaction is more complex 
is an inconsistent but necessary, it's still a kind of a priori necessary reaction, inconsistent mixture of two elements. Your first reaction to hey you there is, why me? What does this idiot want from me? I'm innocent. I was just walking along. Why me? This kind of uh, surprise. Why me? What did I do? I didn't do anything. That's all. Even if you, my point is that even if you are guilty, your first reaction when and a person of authority addresses you is always this, why me? What did I do? What does the idiot want from me? But at the same time, there is the exactly the opposite reaction. Namely, this perplexed protestation of innocence is always accompanied by an indeterminate, let us say almost Kafkaesque feeling of abstract guilt. A feeling that, in the eyes of power, I am a priori terribly guilty of something although it is not possible for me to know what precisely I am guilty of. And for that reason, since I don't know what I'm guilty of, I'm even more guilty. Now that's the other reaction. I must have done something. I don't know what, but it's even worse. This is what I'm guilty of. So the idea being that this very ignorance of mine, it is in very, the very ignorance of mine that consists my true guilt. I feel guilty precisely because I don't even know what I'm guilty of. So my idea is that before, haha, yes, I'm the subject of power, comes this contradictory, antagonistic response. So what we have here is the entire Lacanian dispositive of the subject split between innocence and abstract, a protestation of innocence and an abstract indeterminate guilt. When he is confronted with a kind of non-transparent call emanating from the other. This call, hey you there, a call where it is not clear to the subject what the other actually wants from him. So the subject reaction is precisely that Lacan's Cavoy, what do you want? What do you want from me? The, this non-transparency, impenetrability of the desire of the other. In short, what we encounter here, to put it in Althusserian terms, I think, is precisely interpolation, you are addressed by the other, but interpolation prior to identification. Interpolation where you don't yet have identification. So prior to the recognition in the call of the other, by means of which I constitute myself as always already subject, I'm obliged to acknowledge this timeless instant of a deadlock in which innocence coincides with indeterminate guilt. The ideological identification by means of which I assume a symbolic mandate, I recognize myself as the subject of power, takes place already as an answer to this deadlock. My point is that this deadlock, again, is not an empirical notion, contingent. It's necessary. The first reaction to the call of the power is this kind of uh, contradictory response which, which uh, articulates a certain deadlock. Why me? I must be guilty of something, and so on. It is precisely to, in order to elude, to escape this deadlock, that I assume a certain public symbolic identity. So, again, what remains unthought in Althusser's theory of interpolation? is the fact that prior to ideological identification, recognition, we have an intermediate moment of obscene, impenetrable interpolation without identification. And in short, the unthought of Althusser is that there is already an uncanny subject that precedes the gesture of subjectification, subjectivization, because through ideological identification, this is subjectivization. I become subject in Althusserian sense of uh, legal identity, etc. But prior to that, there is a status of subject, which is not yet this ideological subject in the Althusserian sense. Now, probably you will ask me, is this subject prior to subjectivization? Is this not a pure theoretical construction? 
of no use for a concrete social analysis. I think that the first evidence to the contrary is offered by the syntagm that recurs regularly when social workers attempt to render their experience of the so-called antisocial adolescent criminal who lacks what we ideologically refer to as the elementary sense of compassion, moral responsibility. Namely, what I was struck with that in America, in England, in Germany, all the time they use the same expression. When you are confronted with this horrible mythological, uh, I mean, they are as, almost as evil. I think that for you in England now, the central person of evil is the, the, the single mother, I think. No, that's the true source of all, all evil, no? Because they then bred uh, uh, violent young men, etc. But another figure is, I think, this kind of violent uh, adolescent, the, the, the metaphor which recurs all around. I will counter it again, this metaphor in US, in England, in Germany, in France, is that when you look into his eyes, it seems as if, again we have home, as if there is nobody home. This always, as if you know there is void, there is nobody home, no person behind, no? Uh, and uh, so a similar case of this state, what Lacan would have called l'entre de mort, between the two deaths, where the subject is alive, yet not at home, not integrated into the social symbolic network, is provided by a very vulgar, personal, unfortunately of me, everyday experience. Of precisely when you can experience this strange status of being subject but not yet subjectivization, in the sense of having a symbolic identity. Namely, this will be rather personal, very vulgar. When I answer the phone, and it probably must happen also to you, and an unknown voice says, for example, Mary, are you there? But there is no Mary in your apartment, so you know it's an uh, obvious case of wrong number. I'm always tempted to do something. What? Well, I don't actually do it. Yet, as you probably know, it was already Plato who said that there are two kinds of people. Those who actually do nasty things and those who only dream of, about doing them. Well, I'm the same. So my immediate temptation is to answer something that would cause panic on the other end. Like, don't you know she had a, Mary had an accident? She had just been taken away in an ambulance? Or... She just left in the arms of Robert, etc. Like, you know. The idea is what? The idea is that in cases like this, I am for a brief moment allowed to speak as it were from a symbolic voice. Since, in Europe at least, the list of numbers you called is not attached to the phone bill. So nobody will be able to trace me, to identify me. So I'm freed for all responsibility of my words. No, I'm absolutely free. I'm voice without symbolic identity. So I can screw things up freely. This would be this notion of subject prior to symbolic, uh, prior to symbolic uh, identity. But, however, our contemporary experience compels us to complicate further this picture. That is to say, what strikes the eye in the recent wave of anti-immigrant violence is, let us say, the primitive level of the underlying libidinal economy. Primitive, not in the sense of kind of regression to some archaic level, but in the sense of the utmost elementary nature of the relationship between pleasure and jouissance, enjoyment. Between the closed circle of pleasure principle that strives for balance, for the production of its closed circuit, and the foreign body of enjoyment in its heart. That is to say, the libidinal economy that sustains the infamous battle cry, foreigners out, or in German, Ausländer raus, can be exemplified precisely by the relationship between ich, the ego, and lust, the pleasure, where the non-pleasure, unlust, is defined in the terms of non-assimilation, of, as Lacan puts it, as what remains irreducible 
unassimilable to the pleasure principle. The terms used by Freud and Lacan to describe the relationship of this primordial if, ego, and jouissance, enjoyment, perfectly fit the metaphorics of the racist attitude towards foreigners. This is what struck me when I was recently reading these metapsychological writings of Freud. The whole set of terms is the same as those used by these uh, anti-immigrant violence skinheads and so on. The problems are those of assimilation, resistance to assimilation, expulsion of a foreign body, disturbed balance, and so on. These are fundamental topological terms. So, in order to locate this type of evil with regard to the usual types of evil, one is tempted to use as the principle of classification the Freudian triad of ego, superego, and id. That's my very simple basic thesis. The most common kind of evil is, let's call it, the ego evil. The behavior, we do evil things, why? Because simply we are led by selfish calculation, greed, by the disregard for universal ethical principles. That's the ego evil. If we uh, define ego, of course, in the naive pre-Lacanian, even pre-Freudian sense of the agency of rational uh, utilitarian behavior and so on. Then this is the ego evil. So simple selfish calculation, greed, pleasure, etc. Then we have the evil attributed to the so-called, wrongly so-called, fundamentalist fanatics. Here we have what we might call superego evil. Evil accomplished in the name of fanatical devotion to some ideological cause and so on. But in the skinhead, skinhead beating of up foreigners, one can discern neither a clear selfish calculation nor a clear ideological identification. All the talk about foreigners stealing work from us, about the threat they represent to our Western values, should not deceive us. Under a closer, ex closer examination, it soon becomes clear that this talk provides rather superficial secondary rationalization. The answer we ultimately obtain from a skinhead is that it makes him feel good to beat the foreigners, that their presence disturbs him, etc. So what we encounter here is the, let us say, id evil, the evil structured motivated by the most elementary imbalance in the relationship between ego and jouissance, enjoyment, by the tension between the pleasure, pleasure principle, and the foreign body of enjoyment in the very heart of it. The id evil thus stages the most elementary short circuit in the relationship of the subject to the primordially missing object cause of his desire. What bothers us in the other, Jew, Japanese, Pakistani, African, Turk, whatever, is that he appears to entertain a privileged relationship to the object, object that materializes enjoyment. The other either possesses the object treasure, having snatched it away from us, or he poses a threat to our possession of the object. Now, how are we to combat effectively this id evil? which, on account of its elementary nature, remains impervious to any rational or even purely rhetorical argumentation. That is to say, racism is always grounded in a particular fantasy of Cosa Nostra, of our ethnic thing, menaced by them, and so on, which this particular fantasy, by definition, resists universalization. The translation of the racist fantasy into the universal medium of symbolic intersubjectivity in no way weakens the hold of the racist fantasy upon us. This insensitivity of the racist fantasy to rational, symbolic argumentation means that, to use Wittgensteinian opposition, that fantasy can only be shown, not spoken out. 
So what can we do here? My point of course is not that we can, can, we can do nothing. Because I think that precisely the whole wager of psychoanalysis is that the real of enjoyment of reasons can be changed we, can we, that, uh, through that with uh, the means of symbolic order of signifier we can intervene into the real of jouissons. But how? What I am tempted to propose is, namely as a model for a strategy able to incorporate what Lacan called going through fantasy, la traversée du fantasme, I propose a strategy of over-identification. Namely, a procedure which takes into account the fact that the obscene superego, the basis support of the public law, is operative, as already developed at the beginning, is operative only insofar as it remains unacknowledged, hidden to the public eye. That is to say, what if, when we are opposed to uh, this kind of racist uh, violence, whatever, what if, instead of critical dissection, irony, and so on, which always reveal their impotence, before the face of racism's phantasmatic kernel. What if we proceed a contrario and publicly identify with the obscene superego? Now, this is again not an abstract intellectual construction. I have a pre precise empirical, if you want, verification here. My example is, maybe you've heard about it because it's moderately there, moderately known even here, I think. The Slovene, let's call them post-punk group, the Slovene uh, group, uh, musical group Leibach, German name from, for Ljubljana. They staged, an, in the last years of socialism in uh, Slovenia, they staged an aggressive, inconsistent mixture of Stalinism, Nazism, blood and Boden, that is to say, uh, uh, earth and uh, blood ideology, and so on. Now, the first reaction of the enlightened leftist critics was to conceive of Leibach as an ironic imitation of totalitarian rituals, and so on. However, their support of the enlightened leftist intellectuals, of Leibach, was always accompanied by an uneasy feeling. What if they really mean it? What if they truly identify with the totalitarian ritual? That's very nice, how, uh, this ambiguous effect of Leibach. No, everybody supported them, but it was always with this, uh, with this uh, limit of, uh, minimum of uh, anxiety. What if, they, what if somebody takes them seriously? What if they really mean it? Are they really just uh, mocking, imitating it, or do they really mean it? Uh, a more cunning version of this anxiety, of this distance, of this uneasiness, was transferring one own doubt onto the other. This version went like this. What if Leibach overestimates their public? What if the public takes seriously what Leibach mockingly imitates, so that Leibach actually strengthens what it purports to undermine? Now, this uneasy feeling, I think, is fed on the assumption that ironic distance is automatically something subversive. But what if, on the contrary, the dominant attitude of the contemporary so-called post-ideological, wrongly so-called, universe is precisely the cynical distance towards public values? What if this distance, far from posing any threat to the system, designates the supreme form of conformism, since the normal functioning of the system requires cynical distance. Because that's my basic thesis, that it's not only that today, as it's usually said, that uh, 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 for the late capitalism in order to reproduce itself, you don't, doesn't any, any, no, no longer requires uh, uh, I, uh, strict ideological adherence, identification. My point is that it's even the reverse. It actively requires non-identification, cynical distance. In this case, 
the strategy of Leibach, I think, appears in a new light. It frustrates the system, let's say the ruling ideology, precisely insofar as it is not its ironic imitation, but over-identification with it. By bringing to light the obscene superego underside of the system, over-identification suspends its efficiency. Again, imagine like the universe of Ku Klux Klan or of uh, uh, a few good men, where precisely that what must remain hidden, the secret unwritten rule. If that is brought to the light of the day, if you over-identify with it, if you bring to the light of, if you publicly identify with what must remain in order to be operative, kind of uh, generally known but still non-acknowledged public secret, this way I think you suspend its efficiency. Now in order to clarify this procedure, let us recall a somehow homologous phenomenon <coughs> in the sphere of individual experience. Each of us has some private ritual, phrase, nickname, etc., or gesture, used only at home, within the most intimate circle of closest friends, relatives, you know, for example, you were called something by your uncle, by, by father, by friend, etc. When these rituals are rendered public, for example, when you meet, I don't know, an old friend from youth in another society, and this friend uses that special nickname, I mean, is there anything more embarrassing than that? I mean, and my idea is that what Leibach, this group, did, was to do precisely this, by disclosing this unwritten secret. It ruined its efficiency. So now permit me slowly to conclude with my last example from English culture, <coughs> which concerns precisely this relationship between fantasy and, let's say, political ethics. A very interesting, although ambiguous book, Aldous Huxley's <coughs> The Grey Eminence, as you probably know, the biography of Per Joseph, Father Joseph, who was the political advisor of Cardinal Richelieu. Why is this book interesting, I think? If, in a fictional reconstruction of the modern European history, one wishes to isolate the episode that derailed the normal course of events and introduced the imbalance whose final consequence was the two world wars in our century, the main candidate for this role undoubtedly is the parceling of the German Reich in the Thirty Years' War in the first half of the 17th century. On account of this parceling, the assertion of Germany as a nation-state was retarded. So again, I hope you got my point. If mythically, this is purely mythical uh, mental experiment, if we look for the moment, where did it went wrong? Why the two world wars, etc. It's that. No, 30 years war, 30 years uh, war and uh, this uh, retard of Germany and so on. Now, again, if there is a person who, within this fictitious reconstruction, can be made responsible for this catastrophic result, Again, the main candidate for this role is Père Joseph, Father Joseph, who, through his phenomenal capacity for intrigue, succeeded in introducing a rupture in the Protestant camp, concluding a pact between Catholic France and Protestant Sweden, and thus shifting the center of war to German territory. So again, if you are looking for a person saying he is guilty of all of it, Hitler, whatever, it's Père Joseph, the ultimate embodiment of the plotting Machiavellian politician ready to sacrifice thousands of lives, resort to spy, spying, lies, murder, extortion, etc. But, and this was the feature that fascinated Huxley, but there is another side to this same Father Joseph. He was not only a priest, but a mystic of the utmost authentic kind. Every evening at home, after a day full of tortuous diplomatic intrigues, he plunged into deep meditations. His mystical vision 
bears witness to an authenticity worthy of Saint Teresa, John of the Cross, and so on. He corresponded regularly with the sisters of a small French convent, always found time to advise them on their spiritual distress, and so on. How are we to think these two sides together? At this crucial point, Huxley avoids the true paradox and opts for an easy way out by putting the blame on the alleged weak point of Father Joseph's mythical experience, sorry, mystical experience itself. Its excessive Christocentrism, its obsession with Christ's suffering on the way of the cross, is made responsible by Huxley for rendering possible the reckless manipulation with other people's suffering and so on. For that reason, as you know, Huxley turned away from Christianity and sought for spiritual salvation in the Eastern wisdom. What we must do, however, I think, is precisely to persist in this seemingly impossible conjunction. A person can be a monstrous plotter, yet his self-understanding, his existential religious experience, can be spotlessly authentic. My point is that it is possible for Father Joseph at the same time to be the very origin of modern European evil, whatever, at the same time we have his mystical experience can be totally authentic, blameless, whatever you want. The literary example of this paradox is Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. As we know now from posthumously published sketches, it is Alyosha, this model of innocent, humble spirituality, who, in the unwritten continuation of the novel, was to become a revolutionary terrorist. Now what I want to draw your attention to now my conclusion, is the strict cohomology between Father Joseph and the poor skinhead who, while at home, behaves as the best family man. It is not difficult to discern how these two examples differ from other previously mentioned examples of the constitutive splitting of ideology into public law and the obscene hidden underside, Codred, Ku Klux Klan, and so on. The example of the skinhead almost symmetrically inverts the previous examples of uh, code Red from A Few Good Men of Ku Klux Klan and so on. In it, Code Red Ku Klux Klan, the surface, uh, sorry, in the case of the skinhead, the surface itself gets besmirched. The, the skinhead performs in full public view what the two soldiers in A Few Good Men or members of Ku Klux Klan do under the cover of night, whereas the honest human side recedes into the privacy of home. Notwithstanding the cruelty of his public deeds, the skinhead is privately a warm person like ourselves who loves his mother and so on. So instead of the public law and order front with an obscene backside, as it was in the case of Ku Klux Klan, Code Red and so on, we obtain a horrifying front concealing a tender, honest human backside. Something similar was at work in the Stalinist writings of Lenin. The Stalinist texts openly admit that in his effort to fulfill historical necessity, Lenin was forced to resort to resolute measures to violate many gentle bourgeois moral norms, to order summary executions of a great number of people, and so on. Yet, as it is always pointed out in Stalin's text, notwithstanding all this, Lenin was deeply stirred by Beethoven's piano sonatas, he liked children and cats, and so on. So, that's my point, that either way, either we have the, the Ku Klux Klan version, public law and order, and then uh, the written, sorry, the unwritten obscene underside, or let us say naively, let's call it naively, the totalitarian version, public horror, but behind it, this kind of homely, homely, warm human backside. So, to conclude, my final point is simply that a skinhead does not beat up foreigners in spite of being a model family man at home, but 
for that very reason. Thank you very much. There could be a, a few minutes if anyone wants to ask a question, but obviously some of the issues might return this afternoon. It's just a small point I wanted to ask you, but you talked a bit about um, just towards the end. I wanted to ask you what way you might articulate the word almost symmetrical. If not being a, a purely symmetrical figure, this. Um, Reversal of roles then. Um, you mean this uh, classical bourgeois where you have the... the, the, the almost, it's actually the almost. Ah, the almost. It is the almost because I, in so-called so totalitarian regimes, I think you have the combination of uh, the two strategies. Because although in Hitler, in the case of Hitler's Germany, you have this logic of you do publicly horrible things, but privately you are a nice person. And I, and I give you very nice horrifying examples of this. For example, you know another German Hitler's personification of evil is Heydrich. You know what Heydrich did in private? You know Heydrich, the butcher of Czechoslovakia, etc. You know that every evening he gathered with three fellow SS friends and you know what they played? Uh, Beethoven's string quartets. I mean, if there is a piece of music which is the ultimate. So, but my point is that at the same time you have also the other side. It is as if this second version somehow is inherently not, it's not possible to, to articulate it to the end. Because at the same time, uh, German fascism did also work in this way of uh, public law and order, private dirty secrets. Now, for example, Holocaust himself, they did, this was their point of, 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 of private obscenity. It was not publicly, it was not publicly acknowledged. Namely, people are usually uh, misled today when they think that everything was publicly said. Okay, Jews were despised publicly, of course, anti-Semitic texts were written, but still, Holocaust as such, and a lot of other things, these were definitely not part of the public discourse. This was a kind of, still a kind of secret. So I simply refer to this. It is as if this second, let's call it naively totalitarian logic, cannot work, cannot function to the end. There is an inherent limit. In it. Sorry. There's a Paul and then Jeff. Oh, um, I mostly just want some clarification. At the end, you, and I was interested because the person I asked the first question held you accountable to the precise use of language, which maybe I, I shouldn't do. But you said you were you were tempted to propose the following solution. You actually were willing to propose it. So which solution? At the very end, you said you were tempted to propose the following action. Um, Are you mean apropos of Leibach when I spoke about that? At the very end of the talk, you talked you talk about what is the possible, what is the action that can be taken? Oh, yeah, sorry, yes, I know. Okay. So you were sort of tempted <coughs> to propose this, and I was sort of interested in the desire, the tempt not quite what he proposed, but I, I want to... No, it's, it was simply my, to put it in Stalinist terms, my petit bourgeois reluctance, because the, the, the strategy of Leibach was very risky. But, uh, but I simply refer to this, uh, how did it actually work? I think it worked, but... Uh, but I mean, your proposal is something like this. There is a public law and an obverse private law, which are co-constructed, which are actually dialectic, they yeah. each other. Yeah, and, yeah. In a certain sense, to rein the second in the check, we have to carry the first. We have to exhaust the first one to extremes. 
Which is the first one? No. Uh, the public. Yeah. I mean, is that something like the idea? I, I'm not sure. I really want to get the sense no. of what no. the ending is. No, no. My idea is rather that. Uh, no, my idea was very naive. My idea was that. <coughs> Oh, the, the usual strategy is this kind of uh, against public law and order. My idea is that at this level, against public law and order, you can be very subversive, etc., aggressive, but it's always a great danger that you actually even reassert this level of, uh, this le let's say, level of underside superego and so on. But my idea is that what if we try, it was as simple as that, what if we try the obverse strategy? It is that by that the whole uh, efficiency of this obscene underside is that it is operative only in so far as it's the same as with Anderson's uh, uh, Emperor is Naked. Of course, everybody knows about it, but not the big other. That is, they, it's not publicly recognized. So isn't it then one strategy to precisely not to undermine, to do nothing critical, but precisely to over-identify in the precise sense of bringing to the light of the day this obscene underside? That this way you not only render it inefficient, but you also truly subvert the public law and order insofar as the public law and order itself needs this hidden underside as its, as its support. So where do you see the... But, but what, what Jeff in a way was yes, asking was the strategy uh, which you implied by referring to the ceaselessly public character of Lacan um, as a way <coughs> of kind of uh, gradually eradicating the obscene yeah, privacy. The inexorable conclusion of your talk, for me, yeah. can't end in exactly what you said, because you basically construct a dialectic, pre-temporal dialectic, between two forms of law. And in what sense pre-temporal, sorry? In the sense that there's not uh, public law first and then <coughs> obverse private law, which comes afterwards and supports <coughs> it, but in fact that they are co-constructed. Yes. It's not just that the public law is uh, is sustained by the private law. I'm sorry, yeah. I changed my yeah. But it's also that the private law is sustained by its relationship to the public law. In a way, yes. In Therefore, a way. it cannot be the correct operating strategy, from my point of view, to try to make the private law public. What you actually have to do is step outside of that in a kind of caricature of both, which is what I thought you were describing with Lacan. You can't take a kind of activistic alienism in the sense that I can now end the obverse by constantly exposing it because all I will always do is reconstruct a new obverse law. Okay, I got your point. Sorry, no, no, sorry, it was a little bit, uh, how do you call it, what is the nice term for stupid, uh, a little bit slower, but <laughs> I got it now, sorry, sorry. Yeah. No, I think, no, I'm not such a pessimist here. My, my reference to Leibach was a very precise reference. I see your point, but no, this is, I spoke almost as a kind of political activist, if you my, my point was simply, this is a crucial problem. For example, I know a lot of people, my friends in West Germany, old leftists and so on. And so they are desperate with this uh, neo-Nazis beating up for etc. What to do? What practically what to do there? And a lot of them now advocate, this is very ironic how now in West Germany and even in some ex-socialist East European countries, it's interesting how the roles are almost uh, reversed now. You can Right-wingers are for more populist, public, uh, social, uh, social society, sorry, civil society authenticity, where leftists are for alienated state, law and order, and so on, because they see in this the only way to counteract it. But uh, I think that this, I see at least three strategies. I'm not, definitely not saying that Leibach is the universal answer to this kind of speech. I'm only saying that in the specific situation, this 
kind of over-identification at least renders it inoperative. Lacan's strategy, the example okay, of Lacan, the strategy implied in it is again a different one. There is even a third strategy, and here, this is the central part of my argument. It is that, uh, namely, this opposition between, uh, let us say, public law and order and this private uh, superego is, to put it in uh, political or technical terms, the opposition between uh, ego ideal as symbolic law and superego. And I think that the whole point of Lacan Lacanian ethics is that, and here I could have, but I will not now notice uh, too much of your time, develop this opposition, that this opposition, according to Lacan, is not an opposition that covers all of the field of ethics. So for Lacan, uh, to put it very simply, the, the logic of this public law and order is the logic of the public good, of the supreme good, uh, the, of, the, of the social good, of the good of all, of social life. But for Lacan, precisely when we evoke the public good, which is always, on which is always based the, the ego ideal, the moment we do this, we already, okay, to refer to Lacan, uh, sans désir, we already compromise our desire. And as we know for Lacan, uh, the ethics, the fundamental ethical rule of psychoanalysis precisely do not give way, do not compromise your desire, do not give way as to your desire. So for Lacan, the movement is such that this public law and order ethics, the ethics of the ego ideal, the ethics of the public common good, is precisely a, a betrayal, let us say, of the true ethical stance, and superego is the price we pay for it. And this is how can, can, it can be very nicely explained, the fundamental paradox of superego, which is what, as you probably know, is this kind of closed circle. Superego orders, commands you something, but the more you follow the command, the command of the superego injunction, the more you are guilty. Precisely because you are guilty. Superego is the price we pay for compromising our desire, and I think this is the whole point of Lacan's reading of Antigone. That Antigone, in her act, is, not, is neither the figure of public law and order, nor the figure of superego, as a, the true ethical choice. So there is definitely a third position, and by the way, this is, I think, one nice way to save Freud, which is why, when Freud says, namely, I'm referring to Freud's infamous uh, statement that, you know, women has a weaker superego, precisely because there are more ethical, because for Lacan, precisely, superego, far from being an ethical category, superego is precisely an obscene, category which uh, the, the very existence of superego super ego means that you betray your desire. So again, far from being a kind of anti-feminist statement, this statement that uh, women has a weaker superego, it's if something points precisely towards the fact that they are less prone to compromise their desire and so on and so on. Okay, I didn't answer your question, but to use the old... <laughs> no, again, to repeat my old joke immediately, you know how you can immediately recognize a Marxist book from the 70s, you know, from the 70s. It was always... The title was never, let's say, theory of ideology, but notes towards a future possible theory of ideology. You know, like the object type. We are not... So I hope I gave you notes for a future possible answer to your question. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> You're going to get Jeff's question another way round. Yeah. Okay. Your complicit rituals in a group are precisely designed to make it community effect. Sorry, to make community? A community effect. You can't believe it. Yeah. Okay. People can't hear. Sorry. The complicit rituals that are below the public, below yeah. the state. 
designed to make the community a community effect. <coughs> now, you are proposing, as it were, strategies at the psychoanalytic level or at, sort of, shall we say, the politics symbol. Yeah. There's also a straight politics of institutions, which is to build communities of choice from which people can exit and make communities of faith more difficult to construct. Now, I happen to think that sociologically that is what is happening. In other words, precisely you're talking about groups like skinheads, precisely because communities of faith are increasingly communities of the failed and the rejected. Now, you then have a sociological problem with that. Um, it is partly a problem of public order. But it isn't a general problem of the community. The great danger of talking of the community as if we are actually all involved in communities where there is complicity in that sense. This, I think, sociologically, it isn't true. Right? Yeah, I see your point, I hope I see it, but I still think that, uh, for example, these new communities, so-called new communities of faith, but aren't they... Uh, faith. Yeah. Sorry, faith, like believing, you mean this? No, sorry. faith. faith. Ah, sorry, faith, faith like destiny. Yeah. No, not exactly the same, but in that direction. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, what I think is that, but still, is not... I'm a little bit more pessimistic in the precise sense that uh, these communities of choice, but uh, are we not still, are we not obliged to read these new communities of faith as an, to put it, to use this term now, not in a precise sense, but in a sense, as a kind of inherent system of the failures of our very communities of choice? So I think that the answer to the re resurgence, and it's not only skin cats, it's so-called moral majority or whatever, up and down, this re-emergence of the communities of faith. Is not this a kind of, I'm almost tempted to say that, you would probably not agree with me, I will sound as an old-fashioned Marxist, that in the same way as Marx says that, that Marx says that, that, uh, that, uh, uh, that crisis, this negative, etc., are, you know, an inherent effect of the structural imbalance, whatever, of capital. In the same sense, I am inclined to see these new communities of faith as an inherent, okay, to use old-fashioned terminology again, an, an effect of inherent contradictions of uh, communities of choice, and I can, I will, okay, I will not, not to take too much time, just to give you one hint. I think that in the Freudian, because this community of faith can be defined by a very special feature, by a re-emergence of a certain figure of the leader. They always have the leader. And my thesis here is the following one. With Freud, we have, as everybody knows, or should have known, the opposition of two fathers. That the mis we have two fathers with Freud. We have Oedipal father, public law and order father, and the obscene, totem and taboo, primordial father. What I think Freud did there was that he was a kind of victim of a kind of, uh, of, a kind of perspective illusion. That this so-called primordial father is really a postmodern phenomenon. I think that, that what Freud perceived as a prehistorical phenomenon, this primordial father who has the more, is really a misperception of the, of the modern leader, which is not anymore leader of uh, traditional symbolic authority. For example, what strikes my mind is a clear example of this community of faith, the, that uh, branch Davidian sect, they were killed in Beko, Texas. Did you notice, okay, anecdotic detail, but it's significant enough that the way that community was organized, the leader, David Koresh, 
the basic rule was that he had all the women. Only sexual relationship was permitted. All that's to say, it was a kind of ironic, mocking, but still almost exact copy of Freud's uh, primordial court. So again, uh, where okay, I basically agree with you. The problem I only the problem I see is that I what I consider a little bit illusionary is to have to simply to say that we need more communities of choice and less communities of faith. I think that there is a kind of inherent dialectics there at work to use. And I'm not so optimistic about these communities of choice. What I am more sensitive to is that I'm rather a pessimist in the sense that I think that behind this choice I like, I always think it's possible to discern a kind of hidden command of faith behind it. I'm not so optimistic about these communities of choice, to put it this way. Okay, um, I think we should break for lunch now. We're going to meet back at two prompt. But before we go to lunch, on your behalf, I'd like to thank Savoy very much. <laughs> I feel like in the old times being at the Communist Party Congress. <laughs>